Episode 10, Essential Cooking Tools. Use these tools so you won't be fools. I pity the fool who doesn't use these tools. Yeah. Okay, settle down, Mr. T. (laughs) Stocking up your kitchen for the very first time? Or maybe you're just sick and tired of your cruddy old culinary tools like that giant plastic spatula with that melted front edge. It's time to level up. Having the right cooking implements on hand can mean the difference between having dinner ready in a flash and being frustrated and defeated in the kitchen. No one wants to be crumpled in a heap on the kitchen floor, sobbing. That's why we're going to tell you about my favorite kitchen tools. And don't worry, I won't recommend anything crazy expensive or any one-trick ponies that clutter your countertops. I won't even suggest any items that require electricity. You're such a Luddite. Not really. I'm just saving something for a future podcast. Stay tuned and I'll let you know which kitchen tools this Luddite can't live without. Welcome to our program. This is the non non Show with Michelle Tam and Henry Fong and the Double O's. Join us as we go behind the scenes and reveal how we make a real food lifestyle fun, sustainable, and non-tastic. We're the food nerds behind Nom Nom Paleo, the award-winning food blog, app, and cookbook. And we're also the parents of two growing boys, Big O. Hello. And Lil Lo. Hello. Hi. Hi. Whatever. And they're the reason we do what we do. Before we get started, can I just say how I never thought we'd actually get to episode 10? I did. Who knows if we'll get to episode 20, but here we are at episode 10, and we're still alive and kicking. You know, now that we're 10 episodes in, we should really press pause for a second and do a podcast health check. I mean, Michelle, how do you think we're doing? Do you think people are even listening? Some people are listening, and we thank you for it. We're not exactly pros at this. It's just us sitting around our dining room table with a couple of microphones and you spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours editing everything (laughs) together on your laptop. It's so much fun, people. Editing is so much fun. Well, maybe we can help you edit it, Dad. Or we could record the podcasts. Yeah. Owen can sound like a radio announcer. Do like Channel 7 News like you do at night. Shh. Nothing to Channel 7 News, do it. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Do it, man. No. Um, yeah. I suppose we could do a podcast like that. Or we can just keep on keeping on. Let's actually ask our listeners to tell us what they think now that they've had 10 episodes to consider. So how about it, Nomsters? It's super simple to submit a short review on this podcast. Just hit pause Head on over to iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast and rate and review our podcast. We read all our reviews, good and bad. Hopefully there's more good than bad, but either way, it takes just a minute to do. And with the help of your honest feedback, we'll keep working to make this podcast as fun, informative, and entertaining as we can. Okay, pledge break over. Michelle, what did you eat this week? Well, after returning home from vacation... One of the first things on my to-do list was to stock up our fridge and pantry. I started by heading over to Belcampo Meat Company, which is my favorite local butcher, to stock up on meat. My purchase included short ribs, a big pork butt, pastured eggs, and a lot of ground beef. Although well-raised meat can be expensive, I try to stick to stuff that costs less than 10 bucks a pound. Cheap cuts and ground beef definitely help to stretch our food budget. And after splurging on a lot of restaurant meals while we were on vacation, we definitely scaled back this week. 
you can have a great beef dinner in no time at all. Well, almost no time at all. Beef. It's what's for dinner. I noticed that we actually ate a lot of ground beef stir fries this week. Yep. I love ground beef stir fry. Or as I like to call it, garbage stir fry. Because I was just getting back into the groove of things, I didn't feel like whipping up anything complicated. So I cooked a lot of garbage stir-fry this week with the ground beef from Belcampo. In fact, for I think four days in a row, we had garbage stir-fry. Though to be fair, each day I seasoned the stir-fry differently and I used a different assortment of vegetables. And it really didn't taste like garbage at all. Why, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But it, maybe instead of calling them garbage stir-fries, I should call them something more appealing, like stunning stir-fry surprise. <laughs> A stunning stir-fry surprise. That is worse, I think, than calling it garbage. No dish should ever have the word surprise in its name. That's just a rule. It's the same as with the word delight. I'm pretty sure that in the entire history of the world, there was never a dish with the word delight or surprise in its name that actually delighted or surprised anyone ever. Yeah, unless it was a bad surprise. Well, I like surprises. Surprise parties are pretty good. Sure, but do you like surprises in your mouth? Uh, probably not. Okay, you're right. It's always better to underpromise and overdeliver. So let's stick with garbage stir fry. Anyway, on the first day back from vacation, I made an Italian-inspired garbage stir fry with tomatoes, carrots, beef and onions, and some basil. And I served the stir fry with roasted broccoli and crispy fried potatoes. Following day, I made an Asian-inspired stir-fry with charred ribbons and carrot ribbons, sliced mushrooms and beef. And this one I seasoned with coconut aminos, fish sauce, and a splash of rice wine vinegar. They totally tasted different from each other. That was the whole point. And then on the third day, I made a double batch, which was two pounds of ground beef of another Asian-inspired stir-fry. And this permutation had beef, minced broccoli, mushrooms, diced carrots, shallots, and garlic. And then I seasoned it with fish sauce and coconut aminos, and I added a splash of balsamic vinegar and a ton of minced fresh scallions and cilantro at the end. That was enough to last an extra day. So on the fourth day, I rested, and we had leftovers. <laughs> Kids, were you sick of stir-fries by the end of the week? No, they were pretty good. We had like five in a week anyway, so whatever. Well, at first I said, Mom, stir-fries again? But they were pretty different and they tasted really good. Yeah. So we didn't really notice towards the end of the week. You know, I thought I was going to be sick of all that ground beef, but I really wasn't. You managed to coax a ton of variety and flavor out of the stir-fries by changing up the ingredients, the seasonings, and even the sides. But even if we had gotten sick of day after day of ground beef stir fries, there are ways to mix things up even more, right? Sure. Ground beef can be used for everything from meatballs and burgers to frittatas and soup. I just opted for stir fries this week because every time I was tempted to get takeout, I had in the back of my mind that garbage stir fry is a faster, tastier, cheaper, and healthier alternative. It's like hamburger helper, only made of real ingredients. The moral of the story is always stock up on ground meat in the freezer and keep some thought in your fridge. Toss it with some diced vegetables into a hot skillet and you'll have yourself a super quick school night meal. Or four. Or five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten. Or a million, kajillion, a hundred thousand Googleplex. Isn't infinite bigger? Infinite is not a number. Duh. The main course. For years, I was a kitchen gadget hoarder. 
If you have my cookbook or read my blog, you probably know that I often use a number of appliances and tools to get dinner ready, including an Instant Pot, a slow cooker, a food processor, a supercharged Vitamix blender, a stick blender, and even our trusty countertop toaster oven. Sometimes you use all of those things to prep a single meal. You may be right, but then two things happened. First came the flood. first came the flood. You say that like it was an act of God, like the heavens opened up and then there were 40 days and 40 nights of rain and floods. Okay, it wasn't that bad, but it was still pretty bad. So here's what happened. One night a few years ago, I got home super late from a business trip and slipped quietly into bed. You were already asleep, having had, I'm assuming, a very long day with the kids. We were both exhausted, which is why I think we both ended up sleeping pretty soundly. The next morning, I woke up and stepped out of bed, only instead of my foot touching the hardwood of our bedroom floor, I stepped into an inch of water. I remember freaking out and shrieking, and then you bolted out of bed, half asleep trying to figure out where all the water came from. We figured it out pretty quickly. Overnight, a piece of plumbing under our kitchen sink had burst, and water had gushed out while we slept, totally flooding our home which has hardwood floors throughout. Even as we tried mopping up all the water, I could feel the seams of the hardwood slats buckling and warping under my feet. It was awful. I got on the phone with the insurance company and they immediately sent a crew to our house to start tearing up the floorboards and using industrial fans to dry out the house. It was a total and complete mess. The insurance company told us they were putting us up in a residence hotel for three months while they fixed the mess and installed new flooring. So we threw some things in a few pieces of luggage and drove off. And you know what? What? Despite all the chaos and stress, there was a silver lining to all of this. Besides a new floor? Besides a new floor. I learned that I can get by in life with much, much less. I don't need a lot of material possessions, and that includes kitchen equipment. Only the basics are essential. I won't lie, there are plenty of nice-to-have items that greatly streamline and enhance my cooking. They're great time savers. But when push comes to shove, people only need a few items to cook up nourishing and tasty meals. For the most part, we got by with just a chef's knife, cutting board, cast iron skillet, some wire racks, and a few other items. Whatever could fit into that little carry-on bag we took with us, and that was it. Anyway, you said there were two things that made you understand that you could get by with less in the kitchen. The flood was the first sign. What was the second? Well, more recently, I started reading Marie Kondo's best-selling book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and it's totally reinforced the need to purge stuff I don't really need and that don't spark joy anymore. Wait a second. Back up. You're going to need to explain what this book is all about and what joy sparking has anything to do with house cleaning. Gladly. The life-changing magic of tidying up is a little book that tells you the how and why of keeping your home neat and tidy. Some people have compared the life-changing magic of tidying up to the Whole30. It's like the Whole30 of home organization. The point is that if you pare down your belongings to the essentials and live an uncluttered, well-organized life, it'll change everything. Your stress levels, your thinking, your whole outlook on life. And this is almost comically frustrating for me because, as you know, I've been telling you for years that I hate clutter and that the piles of junk we have strewn all over the house totally contributes to my stress levels. And yet you've always just rolled your eyes and told me that the clutter doesn't really bother you. Yeah. Now somehow you've picked up Marie Kondo's book and suddenly you're on board. 
Well, maybe if you were this cute little Japanese lady with a cute little book, I would have listened to you. <laughs> but I'll admit it, I'm a messy person, and I never felt compelled to deal with the clutter. I never understood why you'd spend your weekends putting things away and trying to clean up. I always figured you just love cleaning. Well, you know I've always told you I hate cleaning, but I like having a clean house, and since no one else will do it, I just go ahead and clean up. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But it was a war I really couldn't win. I'd turn around and the room I'd just cleaned and organized would be a jumble of clothes and books and toys in five seconds flat. I hated it. Well, according to the KonMari method. The KonMari method. Yeah, she has it trademarked. So anyway, the answer is to first get rid of stuff entirely and all at once. That way you're not just putting away things that'll eventually get taken out and thrown all over the place again. There are certain things that are essential, of course, but most of the possessions we all own are totally unnecessary. We keep them around even though they don't serve any purpose. One of the key takeaways in the book is that if something no longer sparks joy for you, get rid of it. Donate it, give to someone who wants it, recycle it, or just toss it. After that, find a place for everything that's left and stop accumulating new stuff. Unless it's a vital necessity or it sparks joy, don't clutter your home with it. Now I'm applying this rule to my kitchen. So what kitchen gadget do you have that doesn't spark joy for you anymore? I have quite a few things that don't spark joy anymore. But one good example is a pricey toaster that I bought years ago that's languishing in the appliance graveyard in our garage. I was reminded of it because one of my friends tweeted that she wanted one. In fact, there are lots of old kitchen supplies that I've collected over the years but rarely ever use. Yeah. For some reason in our garage, we have three different popcorn poppers that we haven't used for years. and We don't even eat popcorn. I didn't even know that, but we will get rid of it. I think a lot of it has to do with the feeling of, hey, maybe someday I'll need this again, or hey, maybe I should hold on to it in case a friend needs one, like with the toaster. But it's time to be honest with ourselves. That rarely ever happens, and in the meantime, our house is just cluttered with junk. No one wants our old secondhand popcorn poppers. Marie Kondo says, if something has already brought you joy at one point, it's already fulfilled its purpose. It's done with. Mothballing it forever doesn't do you any good. Marie Kondo actually tells you to physically touch the item and thank it. Even your socks that worked really hard to protect your feet all day. She likes to anthropomorphize her belongings. That kind of sounds crazy. I think that's part of why I liked her book. <laughs> I don't know if she's just trying to be funny. But it cracks me up that this little Japanese lady is going around her apartment thanking her socks and her shirts and whatever else. <laughs> I don't know about talking to your clothes, but I do see the value in asking yourselves, why are you keeping this stuff around? I mean, are your great-great-grandkids someday going to start a museum of early 21st century artifacts? Do you expect that old hand mixer that's gathering dust in the corner of your cabinet to show up on Antiques Roadshow someday? Because that's probably not going to happen, and you should probably throw it out. I'm learning not to be a hoarder and to stop buying unnecessary things. I'm doing my best to follow the maxim that it's better to spend money on experiences rather than on things. Material possessions rarely spark as much joy after you acquire them. Of course, it's super ironic that this is all coming from someone whose idea of decluttering includes having an industrial-sized paper shredder shipped to our house instead of just having a confidential shredding service do it for us. Well, I'm not saying I'm perfect at this. Does the paper shredder spark joy, Michelle? Yes, it does. <laughs>
I came in the mail and I touched it and it did spark joy. I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. And thank you for shredding up all our papers. And you know what? It'll foster a sense of community because we can have our friends over and have paper shredding parties. Seriously? Seriously, Mom. I think that sounds like fun. We can make our own confetti out of paper. Okay, Michelle, besides stuff that sparks joy, there are things that you just need. What items do you think are essential in the kitchen? I'm going to share with you some of my essential cooking tools. These are the tools I'd bring with me anywhere. I'll also make specific product recommendations so you should know that these aren't brands that are sponsoring our podcast. These are just items I really love using. So how did you figure out which specific products and brands were the best? I'm not the type of person who's an impulse buyer at all. I don't just go to the store or hop on Amazon and pick the first item I see, no matter what you think. (laughs) (laughs) I like the glare that's coming from your direction. Just like how I exhaustively research restaurants before I pick them, I always read up on prospective purchases first. Typically, I refer to several trusted resources before I buy anything. I pay for a subscription to the Cook's Illustrated website, so I always check their reviews before buying kitchen equipment because not only are they well-vetted, but I've already paid for the subscription. Might as well get your money's worth. Yep. And two other great sites that have free reviews are ConsumerSearch.com and TheSweetHome.com. They're both fantastic sites that aggregate a ton of reviews from top-notch authorities, ranging from Consumer Reports to Cooks Illustrated. The reviews are sorted by category, like blenders or whatever, and you can always just skip to the bottom where they recommend a specific product in each category. A couple of years ago, you also wrote your own roundup of essential kitchen tools. We'll link to it from your show notes, but you can also search on nomnompaleo.com for a post entitled Essential Paleo Cooking Tools, and it'll come right up. And then last but not least, I still check Amazon reviews because those are usually the most up-to-date for each product. Whenever I see someone shopping at a store and just pick up whatever's on the shelf, I want to run up to them with my phone and tell them they can get a better one if they would just spend a minute or two on one of these review sites. But I bet you never actually say anything to them. No, because I'm an introvert and I'm not their mother. Okay, let's run through some essentials. First and foremost, you need knives. At the very least, you're going to want a great chef's knife and a good paring knife. When you're preparing meat and veggies, you need to hack them up with speed and accuracy. And if you have to pick just one blade, you're going to want to get a high-quality chef's knife. But that doesn't mean it has to be pricey. According to Cooks Illustrated and the other sites I just mentioned, the best-rated knife is actually the Victorinox Forschner Fibrox. It costs under $40, and it's the best-reviewed, inexpensive chef's knife on the market. But what if you're looking to splurge a little bit more, or you're thinking about giving someone a very pointy, sharp, and extravagant gift? Then I consider a carbon steel chef's knife. I don't have one because they're expensive and require a lot of upkeep. If you don't dry it right, it'll rust. Um, And some people even put mineral oil on it, which I think is just way too much work. Still, they are supposed to be better than stainless steel blades because they're supposed to be harder and stronger. And they're able to take on and keep a sharper edge if they are taken care of properly. And they're really cool looking. Yeah, and that's what's really important with a chef's knife. (laughs) But according to America's Test Kitchen, the best carbon steel knife is a $300 one by J.A. Henkels designed by Bob Kramer, who's an American master bladesmith. They also recommend a $100 Japanese knife by Togaharu that is considered a best buy. 
But if you're going to spend this kind of money, you really should try out these knives yourselves. Hold it in your hand and see how it feels when you chop things. A few years ago, we visited a knife store called Corin in Lower Manhattan, which is home of some of the most amazing and extensive collection of Japanese chef's knives in the world. I learned about Corin because one of my blog readers kept commenting and telling me we had to visit. So on one of our trips to New York, we made a special trip down there and it was totally worth it. I think that's where you ended up buying a Togaharu stainless steel knife, right? Yep. And I specifically chose a stainless steel knife because I knew that I'm too lazy to take care of a carbon steel knife properly. If we're talking about pairing knives to do more delicate knife work, though, you don't need to break the bank. Just get an inexpensive pairing knife. Yeah, a standard pairing knife, which is also known as a spear point pairing knife, looks like a mini version of a chef's knife with a gently tapered blade. And you use it for more precise cutting and peeling. It's really useful in situations where a bigger blade is too cumbersome. You don't have to spend a lot of money on an expensive paring knife, even a cheap one, if you keep it sharp, can help make quick work of small detailed tasks on your cutting board. The one I use at home is the J.A. Henkel's International Classic 4-inch paring knife, but Cooks Illustrated recommends one from Victorinox that only costs about $7. Don't worry, all of these will be listed on the show notes. And with all of your knives, remember to hand wash and hand dry them and keep them sharp. Treat your blades with care and they'll last you a lifetime. Oh, and speaking of keeping your knives sharp, next on my list is a knife sharpener. It's an essential tool for keeping your knives in tip-top shape. You can get yourself a manual AccuSharp knife and tool sharpener. For less than 10 bucks, you can sharpen your own knives in just a few strokes. The AccuSharp's great for Western blades, but as a reader pointed out, if you have an expensive Japanese forged blade, these sharpeners are not the best idea. And this is because Japanese blades are supposed to be sharpened on only one side, and they call for a very specific angle for sharpening. The AccuSharp doesn't do this. You might end up ruining your Japanese blade. Yeah, if you have a super expensive Japanese Guto, you may just want to have it sharpened by a professional. I know that every few months, Michelle, you'll take your knives to the sharpener at the farmer's market. Yeah, there's nothing better than slicing through a ripe tomato as soon as you bring your blades home. Sometimes your local butcher shop will also sharpen your knives for a small fee. But for most people, a home knife sharpener is still the way to go. Recently, I've been tempted to buy an electric knife sharpener, and the one recommended by everybody is the Chef's Choice Trizor XV, which is about $160. It sharpens European, American, and Japanese knives, both serrated and straight, and it can convert a 20-degree factory edge to a preferred 15-degree edge, which means you're getting an even sharper edge. But will it spark joy to get an electric sharpener? It might. Sharp knives make me ridiculously happy. You know what makes me happy, Mom? Cat. Everybody already knows that, Ollie. I know. I just want to make sure Mom doesn't throw away cat. Let's talk about peelers. Yes, let's. I love talking about peelers. And that's why I love you. I keep three vegetable peelers in the kitchen. One with a regular blade... One with a serrated edge for grabbing onto smooth-skinned, super-ripe fruits and vegetables. And one that makes quick work of julienning zucchini into zoodles. I remember the first time I used an OXO peeler in college and it blew my mind. I was in a Bed Bath & Beyond and there was a demo 
where they were showing you how to use these new peelers and I tried it out with a carrot and I was totally in disbelief. It was so easy compared to those tinny, flimsy peelers that we used as kids. When I got home, I wanted to peel everything in the fridge. You kind of still peel everything in sight. That's because everyone should keep in mind that peelers aren't just for peeling the inedible skins off vegetables. They can also make fine edible ribbons or shavings of vegetables for garnishes and salads. We talked about this at length in episode four of our podcast, which was all about vegetables, and in episode five, which was about desperation dinners. What's next on your list? More sharp things. The next essential kitchen tool is a sharp pair of kitchen shears. To be perfectly honest, you don't need shears if you've got a great knife or good knife skills. But a sharp pair of scissors can help handle a host of tasks in the kitchen, from trimming herbs to butterflying a chicken. Butterflying a chicken? You mean spatchcocking a chicken. Yes, spatchcocking. I should have said spatchcocking, because butterflying isn't as fun to say. And it doesn't evoke the same satisfaction you get from crunching through the bones with your scissors and cracking open the bird and flattening it gets you in touch with your food. It's funny to me that some of your most popular chicken recipes have names like spatchcocked chicken or smashed chicken or crackling chicken. I guess people just like to manhandle chickens. Oh, don't say <laughs> ew, that. Ew. That's... <coughs> anyway, when it comes to kitchen shears, choose well-balanced, high-carbon stainless steel shears with micro serrations like little teeth. And that way, it will firmly grip the slippery foods you'll be cutting. And be sure to get a pair with plastic handles. All metal shears are pretty to look at, but when your hands are wet, they'll slip right out of your grip. And we all want to keep our fingers, right? Yeah. For easy cleaning, it's nice to have shears with blades that can be fully separated too. I've tried a bunch of shears in my time, and my new favorite pair is the Kershaw Taskmaster, which I learned about from, you guessed it, America's Test Kitchen. I've used them to debone my crackling chicken for a couple of years now, and they haven't dulled on me yet. With all of us cutting and slicing and chopping, you're going to need a good cutting board too. Totally. If you've got knives and food, you're going to need a good cutting board. I was reminded of this fact when we arrived at our timeshare in Maui, and our kitchen was equipped with a glass cutting board. Yuck. Those really are the worst. Just try chopping a fresh pineapple or watermelon if you want to find out why. The sound and feel of a knife edge smacking down on a glass surface is almost as bad as fingernails on a chalkboard. That's really awful. That's why we go for wooden cutting boards. If you want a great wooden cutting board, a John Booze maple cutting board is a fantastic option. But it is heavy and really expensive. Plus, you have to maintain it with some wood cream every few months. The Booze board is my favorite, too. I like our end grain boards, but you can probably get cheaper options that work almost as well. Yeah, there's no need to blow your budget on a cutting board. Bamboo cutting boards are pretty good and reasonably priced. Plastic is also a much more cost-friendly option, and some folks like it better because you can toss plastic cutting boards right into the dishwasher. But not everyone loves plastic. And if that's you, no problem. Just go wooden. Okay, enough with the cutting and chopping. Let's turn to cooking tools. Yeah, let's talk about cast iron skillets. I love cast iron skillets because they deliver a lot of bang for the buck. So I recommend that everybody has two of them. And I'm not saying this is a hoarder. I actually think you need two of them. 
For just a fraction of the cost of copper or clad metal cookware, these heavy, durable skillets offer super efficient heat retention. They're perfect for frying, searing, or baking and improve with age. Once it's properly seasoned, cast iron develops a natural, non-stick finish, and it doesn't react or absorb the flavors of the food you're cooking. To maintain your cast iron skillets, just make sure you clean them after each use. Wipe them super dry, and also put them on a hot burner to dry before rubbing a bit of melted fat onto all the surfaces. I used to think you couldn't use soap to clean them, but J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of Serious Eats debunked this myth a few months ago in an article titled, The Truth About Cast Iron, Seven Myths That Need to Go Away. (laughs) (laughs) I've read that article. The point is this. Most people think that the seasoning that coats the inside of the skillet is a thin layer of oil, and since soap is designed to get rid of oil, soap will just strip away the seasoning inside your skillet. But in reality, seasoning isn't a thin layer of oil at all. Instead, it's a layer of polymerized oil, which means the oil has already broken down and bonded to the surface of the metal. That's what makes your skillet non-stick. And so dish soap really shouldn't have any effect on your cast iron. But you still shouldn't let your cast iron soak in the sink because you don't want it to stay wet and get rusty. Clean it quickly and then immediately dry and re-season your skillet to keep it from getting gross. I actually put it on a low burner after washing so that the skillet dries completely. In our kitchen, I have a Lodge Logic pre-seasoned 12-inch cast iron skillet, as well as an 8-inch version, which is the one I use to fry two crispy eggs for myself every morning. I love them, but don't presume that the company's pre-seasoning is sufficient. You still need to season the skillet, so follow the instructions on my website, nomnompaleo.com, and just search for how to season and care for cast iron skillets. If you have cast iron skillets, or even an oven or a grill, you'll need heat-resistant oven mitts, too. Unless you happen to be a robot. And if you are a robot, I have two small children who would really like to hang out with you. If I had a robot friend, I I won't want it to cook all the time. I want it to play Legos with me, or maybe, like, fight my enemies. Also, I want it to take care of Kat. I just want to pet her and stuff, and tuck her in. And whatever else, like, help her take naps. I would want a robot to take over the world. Why? Because it's cool and awesome. Uh, That's like fiction. So it looks like the cooking duties are still all mine. No robot help for you, my friend. Hmm. Anyway, if you don't have oven mitts, Towels work fine too, but I prefer to slip on a pair of super heat resistant gloves with five fingers to allow for maximum dexterity. Yeah, I really don't like those weird silicone mitts that look like rubbery shark puppets. I like being able to do spirit fingers with oven gloves on. That's very important. It is. I even wear toe socks because I like each individual digit on my hands and feet to have the freedom to roam independently. Do you touch your toe socks and thank them for their service to your feet too? I don't, but I should. I should give thanks to my oven-safe gloves, too. You really should. (laughs) And you should choose a glove made of Kevlar or Nomex. They'll allow you to handle items that are hundreds of degrees in temperature and not burn your hands. I used to have OvGlove branded gloves, but a lot of reviewers on Amazon say that the new ones don't work as well. As a result, I've done some digging, and my newest recommendation is to buy gloves from the brand Grill Heat Aid. They've gotten over a thousand great reviews on Amazon, and it has a no-hassle, 100% money-back guarantee. Sure, they're not the prettiest things you've ever seen, 
You won't be wearing these to the opera, but they'll keep you from cooking your hands. And they'll look great with your ugly Christmas sweaters. One more caveat. It won't protect you from hot liquid, so no handling molten lava while you wear these gloves. But who dips oven gloves into hot liquid anyway? Exactly. You're not going to use your hands to transfer and flip your foods, right? Instead, people should use tongs. You don't need anything fancy here. Just get a basic pair of locking tongs with wide scallop pincers and you'll be all set. I have a few pairs of differing lengths of locking tongs in the kitchen, but when we're doing high heat grilling in the backyard, we use a set of 16 inch tongs. One thing to note is that a bunch of big name chefs like David Chang of Momofuku and Thomas Keller of the French Laundry really, really hate tongs. David Chang was profiled in the New Yorker and he said he found a line cook cooking family meal, which is the meal for the restaurant staff, with tongs. And he was totally unhappy about it. He pointed out that, quote, it's bad technique. It ripped the food apart. It was how you cooked at TGI Fridays. You should have been using a spoon or a spatula. Cooking with tongs showed disrespect for the chicken, disrespect for family meal, and by extension, disrespect for the entire restaurant. End quote. Never disrespect a chicken. Ever. And Thomas Keller banned tongs from being used in his restaurant's kitchens, too. Only spoons and hands are allowed. He says that tongs damage food. So if you go to work for him and bring a pair of tongs in, he'll tell you to take them home to your mother. Well, good for you, chefs. If you're a chef at a fancy restaurant, I'm all for you using better tools to handle preciously, artistically presented food that customers are paying top dollar for. But hey, I'm not a chef, and I've never claimed to be one. I'm just a home cook, so I'll continue to happily cook with tongs like a mother. Yes, you are a mother. <laughs> Besides, you're often using tongs to handle roasted meats, and I'm just not sure it's necessary to handle those cuts like they're super delicate or fragile. Nope. I'm more interested in my roast meats turning out perfectly cooked. And that's why I use meat thermometers. To make sure your roasts turn out properly, get yourself an instant read probe thermometer with a display that sits outside the oven. Stick the probe into the center of your meat, make sure it's plugged into the display, and roast your food until the desired internal temperature is reached. Instant read in-oven probe thermometers aren't pricey, so don't be penny-wise and pound-foolish. Invest in a good one so you don't screw up your expensive meat. Which one do you recommend? My newest one is a Chef Alarm by Thermaworks. It works like a charm and I love it. I also have a Thermapen. Thermapens are the most accurate thermometers around, but they're a bit more expensive, about 100 bucks, and not super useful when it comes to perfectly slow roasted meats because you have to keep on opening and closing your oven and stabbing your meat. And that means losing heat from your oven every time you open and close the door. Speaking of ovens, I know you swear by wire racks and rimmed baking sheets. Yes. Rim baking sheets are great, and even though most people use them as cookie sheets, you don't have to use them to bake cookies. I use them instead to roast meats and vegetables or to crisp up batches of kale chips. I reach into my drawer for a baking sheet every time I cook. I line them with aluminum foil or parchment to make it easier to clean up, and I'm good to go. A kitchen supply store is a great place to stock up on rim baking sheets, but you can also find them online. Personally, I recommend getting sheets that are no smaller than 13 by 18 inches, otherwise known as half sheets. You might be tempted to buy a full baking sheet, but they're too big for most home ovens. What about wire racks? How do they fit into this whole thing? You can never have too many wire racks, no matter what Marie Kondo says. (laughs) (laughs) They don't take up much storage space, and they're incredibly versatile. 
I use them to keep my roasted meats from sitting in a puddle of grease in the oven, to elevate the proteins I'm about to set ablaze with my kitchen torch, or to keep my crispy sweet potato fries from going limp and soggy. And I always put my freshly fried crackling chicken on them too. Trust me, wire racks will come in handy in a number of kitchen situations. People are always commenting on how difficult it is to find these wire racks, though, and how challenging it is to keep them clean. What do you tell those people? Here's what I say. Seek out your local kitchen supply store and buy a bunch of wire racks. You can also find them online on Amazon. My favorite racks are made of stainless steel because they're practically indestructible, unlike the chrome-lined ones that can flake off with use. And yes, folks always ask me how I keep them clean. Short answer is that I soak them flipped upside down in a baking sheet filled with hot soapy water. I put it in the sink as soon as I plate our dinner and it soaks while we eat. Then I scrub off most of the food with a steel wool and toss it in the dishwasher. That's pretty much it, right? That's basically everything we took with us when we moved into a residence hotel for the three months after the flood. I think so. I could go on and on about kitchen tools, but those are my favorite essentials. You can find more information about these and other useful cooking gadgets on nomnompaleo.com or in our cookbook, Nom Nom Paleo Food for Humans. Crush of the Week! What's your crush of the week, Michelle? I already talked about it, remember? Right now I'm in love with a book by Marie Kondo entitled The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I'll say it again. I'm a complete slob and a total pack rat. But after reading this book, I'm inspired to use the Conray method to get rid of the clutter. The gist of it is this. You set aside a day to systematically go through all your belongings, starting with clothes and then books and then the rest of your stuff. You touch each one to see if it sparks joy. If not, you chuck it or you donate it. Then you put the remaining stuff away but you make sure that everything has a specific place. She even teaches you how to fold and put away your clothes properly. Mark my words, we're scheduling a day in the near future to do this. Oh, it'll take more than a day. It'll take hours just to sort out our socks and say our proper thank yous to them. Owen, for this episode's Crush of the Week, what's your favorite kitchen tool? Um, I don't have any. I don't use kitchen tools. Nothing? Well, I like toothpicks, but not for food. I use them as tools for my clay sculpting. It's good for detail work, like when I sculpt the creases on the the faces of my characters. But you end up leaving toothpicks all over the house because you're sculpting all the time, everywhere. Also, once Dad was looking in the Lego box and he pricked himself with a toothpick. Well, nobody has stepped on any toothpicks yet. You don't know that. Well, toothpicks are also good for eating, because you get to, like, play with your food by, like, stabbing it. (laughs) Also, in Costa Rica, we went to this place that had burgers, and, like, I took ketchup and some fries, and, like, those things that hold the burgers together are, like, green swords. And then I, like, put ketchup on the sword and like stab into the french fry and it's like the french fry is dead and bleeding. Oh yeah, toothpicks are good for cleaning my nails. My nails are always dirty. I need a toothpick right now so I can scrape everything out. So you don't have to clip and then take it out. Mommy, my favorite kitchen tool is metal straws because I can drink everything. That's a good one. We have stainless steel straws that are reusable and you use them all the time. 
In fact, you insist on using them even when you're sipping a cup of bone broth. Yeah. Why do you love straws so much? Oh, I just like sucking on them. It helps me drink things faster. Do you ever drink things without straws, Ollie? No, I just sometimes I eat stuff with my straws. I'll scoop food from the tip of my straw and put it in my mouth. So that's why you eat so slow. You're just jabbing straws into things. Could be. I'd eat faster if I could suck up all my food through my straw. So I'll just blend up all your food in a blender from now on, okay? Okay. So you want a crackling chicken smoothie? No, not crackling chicken, but everything else. Okay. So like a steak smoothie. Mm, yeah. You're an interesting child. You're an interesting child. Question of the week. Cynthia asked this in an email. I have to ask you, Michelle, if you can talk about cheat days when you do paleo. I eat paleo whole thirty approved foods every day, but sometimes I schedule a cheat day mostly on weekends. I would appreciate it if you could have an episode about cheat days. Is it healthy? I totally understand where you're coming from, Cynthia. When I first started eating paleo, I was so intent on doing it perfectly, and I never wanted to stray from eating "quote unquote" clean. Mostly, it was because I was afraid that if I veered off course and fell face first into a box of donuts, I would never ever get back to eating well again. So I understand feeling like you need to schedule a day to cheat. And I also know Tim Ferriss endorses this in his Four Hour Body Book because it keeps people accountable, and according to him, it regularly helps rev up your metabolism. But in my opinion, it's better to look at paleo as your lifestyle. There's no such thing as eating perfectly paleo all the time. Remember, the whole thirty is just for thirty days. It's a reset to show you how great you can feel when you eat nourishing whole foods. Afterwards, you reintroduce foods systematically to see how you feel when you eat them. Some folks need to eat whole thirty for longer periods of time, and some folks have to eat even stricter than a whole thirty protocol. But most of us don't. I've said it before, but in my mind, paleo is a compass, not a straitjacket. It shows us the direction we need to go, but it doesn't and shouldn't restrict us from taking the road less traveled when it feels right. As long as we're still headed in the right direction overall, that's all that really matters. Personally, I don't like saying meals are cheats because it implies that food choices, even ones made thoughtfully, are inherently bad. Yeah, we try to head in the direction of better health by eating paleo, but there are times when going off-road makes total sense because it's worthwhile. Maybe something tastes really good, and you want to have a bite, or there is some special significance associated with eating it. These occurrences aren't always predictable, but sometimes they are, like a special birthday celebration or travel. But as we talked about in episode seven, traveling while paleo, and episode nine, when we chatted about our Maui eats, we're mindful about our choices. It's important to make a conscious decision to put something in your mouths instead of mindlessly shoveling chips down your throat while you're binge watching TV. And so we don't just hoover food down because it's a cheat day, and we're allowed to. Yeah, I choose to eat whole foods most of the time because I want to be the healthiest version of me. But I'll indulge in non-paleo food on occasion when I think it's worth it. It doesn't have to be on a cheat day, Saturday, or whatever. But remember that barometer is different for everybody. For example, I won't eat something with gluten in it because I know I'll feel terrible afterwards. Also, after going paleo, a lot of things just taste too sweet for me these days. So instead of ordering dessert every time I go out to eat, I'll just come home and have a bite of 85% or 90% cacao chocolate. And I'll go to the freezer and get myself a scoop of ice cream, and not because it's a cheat, but because it's a treat. And because you love it. I do love ice cream. Hey, Dad, I want some ice cream too. No. <laughs> no. 
No. So that's it for this week. This podcast was recorded and produced at Nom Nom Paleo World Headquarters, also known as the dining room in our house, located in the heart of Silicon Valley, 50 feet from Jeremy Lin's parents' house. The Nom Nom Paleo theme song is by Mark Bartels, with additional music by Big O and Politaire. This podcast is supported by Thrive Market, our favorite online destination for wholesome products at wholesale prices. Pay one low membership price and you can shop from over 3,000 healthy, natural products, always 25 to 50% off retail, delivered straight to your door. Right now, if you go to nomnompaleo.com thrive, you'll get two months free membership at Thrive Market and an additional 20% off your first order. And in case you're wondering, unless stated otherwise, none of the brands or products mentioned sponsor this podcast. We just talk about the stuff we love. If you like this podcast, we have two favors to ask. First, you can visit us at nomnompaleo.com for show notes, and you can also find hundreds of step-by-step recipes, kitchen tips, snarky writing, and more. We also have an iPad app and a cookbook. More information at nomnompaleo.com. And last but not least, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us to get a sense as to what you like. Join us next time for more Nom Nom Paleo podcasts.